0: Oh, so good to be back from vacation. Two weeks seemed like such a, a long time. And someone reminded me here this morning, I forgot all about it. A month ago, we videotaped a welcome from me, just to let you know that I wasn't very long gone. And, and uh, in there I said, I bet you didn't see, think you'd see me here today, but I was still here. And we're getting ready for Vacation Bible School and you can see the jeep all set for the safari those are my eight-year-old winter tires from my car and they fit in very well with this vehicle now on my vacation uh, the first five days we were here looking after our grandson then we went to a church family camp and next year i'm going to encourage more of you to come and attend that with us because it's really an amazing experience and then we went to Prince Edward Island on Sunday the 4th and started off with a couple of days with my mom because she had uh, some issues with her heart, which ended up being uh, not that big an issue. And then golfing and beach a little bit. Then there was a, a family reunion on the weekend. And golfing was a part of that and bridge jumping on Saturday. And then on Sunday we got together again to eat played a game together, and then the results of the golf tournament were given. And I kind of win that every year. And I had the lowest score again this year, my team did, my cousin and I. But there was some disagreement because I had the score on my card, and then my wife was playing in our group, and she recorded our score differently. And when that happens in the real world, there's a disqualification. So my character came under question there for a while, so I just proceeded to replay the whole round. I Every shot, I said where we were, what club I used, and by the end of that, they said, look, here's first place, you won again. But we have some younger uh, cousins that in a couple of years' time, they'll be winning that easily. But there are characteristics that make our lives distinctive, and... There are many characteristics that make Jesus Christ's life distinctive. And every Sunday we celebrate one of those, and that is his resurrection from the dead. And the fact that he is the King of Kings, the fact that he is Lord of all. And this morning we're going to focus on Christ's identity and then our responsibility as a result of that. Luke chapter 9 comes on the heels of Jesus feeding this crowd of probably 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men in the Bible. And to say that people are feverishly trying to get to Jesus would be a huge understatement. It would be front page news and the caption would read, Free food for everyone. Come hear the teacher from Nazareth and be fed by him. They all wanted to be around him. So in verse 18 of Luke 9, we notice Christ's identity here, first of all. One time when Jesus was praying alone, his followers were with him, and he asked them, who do the people say I am? And they answered, some say you were John the Baptist, others say you were Elijah, and others say you were one of the prophets from long ago who has come back to life. So we need to stop Right there, because we face decisions, we face choices in our lives today about who Jesus is. And just like back in the first century, people see Jesus in a variety of ways. Like some will say, well, he's a Palestinian revolutionary, or they'll say he's a social prophet, or he's a mystic who practiced cultural compassion. And if you think about it, what the disciples shared with Jesus were some actual positive rumors that they'd heard. And they presented to him as a compliment. They say, you're a great prophet. They say, you're like Elijah. Some of them say that maybe you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. And some of them say that you're a really good man. And the more you dig beneath the surface, that's what you hear people say today as well. Now, Jesus was a good man, but I don't buy the whole story about him. Uh, Yes, his words are very compelling and they're beneficial for society as long as his words are taught as one way and not the only way. But if Jesus was merely a good teacher who could captivate a crowd with his teaching, with his lessons, then there'd be no reason for us to be here today I could be on the golf course. You could be off heading towards the beach or or just doing something with your family. C.S. Lewis, he said, you cannot merely say that Jesus Christ was a good man. He has not left that option available to us. For if he is not the Son of God as he claims, then he is a terrible liar and not a good man. So with Jesus, it's either all or nothing, like regardless of what the world might say, like we need to understand that. So, what does Simon Peter say about who Jesus is? Because Jesus asks the question of his disciples, he's been listening to what others have been saying, but now he's spent a lot of time with these guys and he's wondering, what do you guys think about me? So, verse 20, Jesus then asks them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah sent from God. And then Jesus strictly warned his disciples not to tell anyone about this. Now you've got to wonder why he said that. Why why keep this a secret? And really, as you think about it, the timing wasn't quite right. And if they revealed who Jesus really was, the crowds would slow down their travels even more. But give Peter credit. But he got the answer. I attended Maritime Christian College, and there were five courses that I had to take at the University of Prince Edward Island. So I waited until my fourth year, took them all at once, and then I was able to play hockey at the university that year. So I'm in my English class. It's a first-year English class, and I'm 22 years old. I've been writing sermons by this time and one day the professor is presenting sentences and the punctuation is incorrect and he's asking us to correct it so i just kind of sit back i know the answer and my fellow 18 year old students they make some guesses and then finally i put up my hand i give the correct answer then he presents another sentence and the same thing wrong 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 I put up my hand, did this a few times, and I could see that my classmates were getting annoyed with me. And one guy even goes, he said, I thought hockey players were supposed to be dumb or something. So, but I had the right answer. And when Jesus asked that question, Peter had the right answer. And what we have here in the book of Luke is actually the Cliff Notes version of this. He says, you are the Messiah sent from God. But if we look in Matthew chapter 16, we see the more full explanation there. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is asking Peter this question. While they're standing in this idol-infested area, there are dead idols all around them. And he asks Peter, okay, here are all these gods. Who do you say I am? And Peter's response is, you are the living God. And several months later, Jesus proved that by rising from the dead. Now, Peter wasn't the only one that concluded that Jesus was the Christ. Pretty well anyone who got to know him came up with a similar conclusion. Just ask the angels what they think and remember their announcement. A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. That's what they said that night when he was born. Ask John the Baptist... And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Ask the demons, and they said, What do you want with us, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? And then ask Judas, and he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Ask the Apostle Paul, and he said, Nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And then ask Pontius Pilate, and he said, Well, I find no fault in this man. Ask the Roman centurion who was standing guard while Jesus was hanging and dying on that cross. And he said, surely this man was the son of God. And then ask Thomas what he thinks about Jesus. And he falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And ask Peter as he is given the privilege of sharing the first gospel message. And this is what he said. This Jesus, whom you crucified, has been made both Lord and Christ. So I ask the same question of you today. Like, who do you say that Jesus is? And some will say, well, I just don't know Jesus all that well. I don't go to church a lot. I don't read the Bible a whole lot. I can't really put my faith in someone I know so little. And my statement is, oh, really? But if we put our faith, in people that we don't know all the time. Let's just imagine that you just moved to Halifax, and that may be true for some of you in the past month or two, and let's imagine that you become ill. So I know what you'd do. You'd schedule an appointment with a doctor that you've never met before, and the doctor would tell you that you have a sickness that you can't pronounce the name of, and then he would write out a prescription in handwriting that you can't read, but still you would take that prescription and you would go to a pharmacist who you've never met, and that pharmacist would fill the prescription and you would start to take that medication. Now, that's faith. So when you approach that first green light on your way home from church today, You're approaching that in faith. Faith that the people that have red lights will stop and won't charge through that intersection. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith means being sure of the things we hope for and knowing that something is real, even if we do not see it. So we have so much evidence to bolster our faith we have the eyewitness testimonies. We have all the historical and archaeological evidence. We have prophecies. We have a written record that has stood the time. Like 2,000 years ago, the New Testament was written. 3,500 years ago, parts of the Old Testament were written. And we have thousands upon thousands and thousands of lives that have been transformed by Faith in Jesus Christ. One time I was away on a Sunday and the person was speaking and he mentioned a a story. He said, Has anyone heard about Rosie Ruiz? And I said, Yeah, I kind of told that story about 10 years ago. And he went through his message and I did that three times to him. I knew all his stories. But this one about Rosie Ruiz, I have to share again, because she was the first woman to cross the finish line in the 1980 Boston Marathon. And everybody was cheering, but then they knew that something wasn't quite right. She finished four to five minutes ahead of all the other women. Nobody recognized her. Nobody had ever seen her in a race before. And then through some investigation, they discovered what was going on. She ran the first mile of the race, then she hopped in a cab and rode to a point about a mile from the finish, and she stayed in the cab waiting until she thought, you know, the lead pack will be coming along soon. So she got into the race and then went across the finish line victorious. But when she went across that finish line in front of that astonished crowd, there was a very perceptive reporter who came up to her and he said, Madam, you are either the fastest woman on the face of this earth or you're a fraud. And you know something? Jesus Christ is either the Messiah, the son of the living God who conquered the grave, or he's a fraud. Like, it's one or the other. Like There's no middle ground here at all. If he's a fraud, he pulled off the biggest hoax of all history. He fed that group of 20,000 people, making them think that they were being fed. He fake-healed people. He even fooled people by bringing them back from the dead. Then he allowed people to kill him. And most people didn't even survive the beating alone. And he was placed in a tomb that was airtight. He was there for two days with no food or water and then somehow he still had the strength to roll that huge boulder away and then there was the matter of this garrison of Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb to make certain that he stayed in it. And somehow he overpowered them. He must have been like my grandson Seth. seth got all the moves. He's Tai Chi and Kung Fu. Like, Grandpa, I can take on everybody. So maybe that's what Jesus did. He karate-chopped all those soldiers, and he got them to tell a lie. He got them to spread this story that... His body had been stolen by his followers. And then he went and talked to his closest followers, his disciples, and he talked them into being tortured, imprisoned, and murdered for what they knew to be a lie. And don't forget that during his three-year ministry, every time that he alluded to his death, he, in the same sentence, said that he would come back to life again. And that's not to mention all the prophecies that he fulfilled about being the Messiah. So what do you say? Is he the king of kings, or is he just someone that duped everybody and he got into the record books? At the end of this message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your final answer. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that will just revolutionize your life. So now in verse 22 the son of man must suffer many things he will be rejected by the jewish elders the leading priests and the teachers of the law he will be killed and after 3 days will be raised from the dead so Luke 9 kind of shifts gears now after his acknowledging his deity and announcing his impending death and resurrection now Jesus begins to talk about our responsibility and something that I've always thought would be really neat to do is coach the St. Mary's University men's hockey team. Like, they've competed in and they've won the national championships a number of times. And as a father of three females, like I ended up coaching sports like soccer and and then volleyball. The girls played rugby, but I didn't know enough about rugby to be able to coach that sport. But I always wanted to coach hockey, so why not the university team? But there's one aspect of that job that I wouldn't be very good at, and that is recruiting. And the reason is it would be difficult for me to persuade some athlete to come to my school and still be honest with them, to say, like, we need you, man. Like, you're the type of player we need on our team. Like, You're going to make our team stronger, and we'll help develop you. We'll win some championships with you. But I've got to be honest with you. Like when you come to our school, you're expected to go to class every day. You're expected to stay out of trouble. And don't even think that you can start skipping practices every so often. If you don't intend on doing those things, then you'd be better off going to another university. See, that would be kind of difficult because you would lose recruits that way. But there's a sense in which I'm a recruiter for Jesus Christ, After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to go into all the world, and he said to make disciples. So part of my job is to get people to enlist on the Lord's team. And he promises that we'll win victory over sin and death. He promises that he'll develop us to spiritual maturity. And Jesus alone can make those promises because he is the one that went to the cross for us and rose back to life again. Now we host potential recruits here every Sunday morning. Everybody's always filling out Connect cards. And we try to make a good impression. We hope that you'll like us and, and come back again next week. Our ultimate hope is that you'll make HCC your church home. But we don't want to recruit you under false pretenses. Like the Lord already has Too many followers who think that being a Christian is just showing up at church once in a while, whenever it's convenient. So there is a daily commitment that's required by Christ. There's a high standard that he expects. He identifies himself as the Messiah. And then he says, I'm going to die for your sins, and I'm going to come back to life again. So look at verse 23. Jesus said to all of them, If people want to follow me, they must give up the things they want. They must be willing to give up their lives daily to follow me. So this verse actually presents three words or concepts that define what is required of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And these aren't popular with some people, but they're absolutely essential if Jesus Christ is going to be the Lord of your life. And the first concept is a hyphenated word, and it's self-denial. And that means you must forget about yourself. Now, that definitely isn't popular in our age of self-indulgence. Like most parents in Canada don't teach their children self-denial. If our kids really want something, then you know we, we give it to them. And I was hoping that as a grandparent, like, I'd be stronger in this area. I'm doing okay sometimes. But there are other times when I give in. Like, uh, the One time I was tough, though. Seth, our grandson, was with us. His mom and dad were in Mexico at the time. And we were Shopper's Drug Mart. And he was just overwhelming me. Like... Grampy, he'd pick out something. I need this. And he'd just go on, I really need this. And I said, no, you don't. And put it back. And then he'd grab something else. Grampy, I've got to have this. I need this measuring tape. I've got to be able to measure how tall I am, how big the room. And no, Seth, you don't need... And he went through four or five things and I managed to say, no, 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 no. And we got home and he started crying for the first time in our presence. I want my mother and my father. And I still didn't give in. But it's so hard in this age of affluence, and we're into gratification. If I want it, I buy it now. If it feels good, I'll do it. If you think it, just say it. If you can't get it, then really it's ask your grandmother, and and you'll get it. But I've got to be honest with you. If you're going to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then self-denial is required. Look at what Peter said. He said, Dear friends, you are like foreigners and strangers in this world. I beg you to avoid the evil things your bodies want to do that fight against your soul. So the Bible teaches that we have certain desires that they can drag us down if we give in to them. But a follower of Jesus Christ makes a conscious decision to restrain those impulses and allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our desires. Maybe you're struggling with lustful thoughts, but if you're a Christian, you deny self and you seek fulfillment only within the boundaries of marriage. Or maybe you're angry and you want to retaliate physically or verbally, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you deny those selfish impulses and express kindness. The words disciple and discipline come from the same root word, So if you're going to enlist in the program of Jesus, then he expects you to practice self-denial. The second concept is sacrifice. That's where he said you must take up your cross each day. Now in the first century, the cross wasn't some nice ornament. We'll see many people with a little cross on a chain around their necks. People back in those days did not wear that because a cross was the Roman method of execution. And when Jesus died on that cross, he wasn't forced against his will. He didn't die a martyr's death. He chose to give his life as payment for our sins. Notice his words in John chapter 10, verse 17. The Father loves me because I give my life So that I can take it back again. No one takes it away from me. I give my own life freely. I have the right to give my life, and I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father commanded me to do. So I want to tell you that we're going to have to take up our cross, and that means that we're going to voluntarily make sacrifices for Christ and for other people. It has to do with our resources, it has to do with our time, it has to do with our money, it has to do with our energy, and with our talents. Because in Philippians 2, Paul wrote, "...do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others." And then he goes on to say that your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who offered his life as a sacrifice... My parents were born about the middle of the Depression back in the 30s, and they were accustomed to sacrificing and giving up for others. Like Mom tells a story about being sent to the corner... Well, it wasn't the corner store. It was just the store in the little community they lived in. And my grandmother would give her milk and eggs to trade for some other products and a little bit of money. And she would tell my mom... Whatever's left over, you can use to buy yourself a treat. And mom said every time, it never got over five cents. Sometimes it would be a penny or or two cents, and she'd get a couple of little candies. That's what life was like back then. And they tried to instill that in us. But our generation, we're just not like this at all. So let me share with you one of the goals that we have for every member of our church like no one is required to make a sacrifice it's actually a volunteer thing like back on the the, the weekend when my family was together one of the things we did like there's always some quiz that we do in our gatherings and this time someone found the canadian citizenship exam it's just 20 questions and you have to get 15 of them correct in order to become a citizen of Canada. But I found number 14 interesting. Give an example of how you can show responsibility by participating in your community. And the options were mind your own business, which is an okay thing, have a party, keep your property tidy, everybody appreciates that. But this was the answer, volunteer, volunteer. That's what our country is asking of us as citizens of this country. And that's what Jesus is asking of us. And no one is tracking us individually, but I want you to know right up front what our goals are. And we encourage the members of this church to tithe their income. That is to give 10%. Now, that's not possible for everybody. We know that. And our goal is to get everyone to give a minimum of three hours a week towards spiritual development. Like at least an hour a week here in worship. At least an hour a week participating in one of our life groups through Bible study and building community. And then at least an hour a week in service, whether it's inside the church or outside the church. But we encourage people to sacrifice their very best talents to grow the kingdom of God so that might mean singing in one of our bands it might mean teaching in glow kids downstairs it could be working in the nursery it could be greeting or, or at our welcome center it could be doing the slides for sunday and the list just goes on and on of the things that people do in this church there are dozens of people that give their very best efforts their very best energy not the leftovers to jesus said seek first his kingdom and his righteousness then all these other things will be added to you as well. One guy defined uh, sacrifice this way. He said, it's giving up that which you love for something that you love more. And that's exactly what we do when we sacrifice for others. So Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, then you take up your cross and you follow me. Now the last concept is in the last verse here, and it's submission. And we don't like that word very much. We're into leadership. Like the shelves of bookstores are lined with books about how to be a great leader, how to get people to follow you. But there aren't any books there that talk about followership. Like bumper stickers say, question authority. They never say, submit to authority. But the Bible says this in James 4, 7. So give yourselves completely to God, stand against the devil and the devil will run from you so if we're going to be a follower of jesus christ then we need a submissive humble mindset and this has to do with our attitude toward authority because protective pride says i don't feel like going to church this sunday because i stayed up late the night before and i just want to sleep in but if you follow jesus christ and he's the Lord of your life. You submit to his word as surely as a private submits to the general. And in his word, he says, you should not give up worshiping together as some are in the habit of doing, but you should meet together and encourage one another. So I get up and I go. Like some mornings, I don't feel like coming. But, but intellectual pride says, I don't want to speak up about the Bible in my classroom. People are going to think I'm ignorant or something. But if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you will speak up because this is what he said in Luke 9.27. If people are ashamed of me and my teaching, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and with the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And then there's stubborn pride, and that says, I don't feel like forgiving that guy that told the lie about me. I just want to get even with him. But Jesus says, if I'm going to be the Lord of your life, and you're going to follow me and my word, then my word says, forgive as you have been forgiven. Like, we've actually been on a bit of a run lately of people that have started reading the Bible on their own or maybe somebody's been teaching them outside of our church and they have come to faith in Jesus and then they just want to talk to somebody to just guide them to go further with this. So we've had a young couple from the neighborhood, a a medical guy from Chester, a young woman from China when she was here visiting her half-sister and we've baptized all of them and in doing that, I started thinking back to the first person that I baptized. Like, I did have another life before Halifax Christian Church, but before we came here in 1988. And it was a little place called Burt's Corner, New Brunswick. And my first baptism was an 86-year-old man. His name was Pearlie Esty. And boy, he was just so nervous about doing this. And when I baptized him, he just, couldn't trust me. He couldn't get his hands off the side of the baptistry. But when I brought him up out of the water, like he was just all aglow and there were tears welling up in his eyes. And you might say, well, why bother getting baptized at 86 years of age? It's because he believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for his sins. And he believes that Jesus rose from the grave and he submitted to him as Lord. And God's word says, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. Anyone who does not believe will be condemned. So Pearlie was willing to do whatever Jesus commanded, even though it was really tough for him. The Lord wants you to be his disciple. And we would love to have you as part of the team of this church, but you don't have to wait or maybe you shouldn't even wait until you're 86 because you might not have that long to make that choice. The final answer for you may be required much sooner. But I do want you to understand that a commitment is required, a commitment of faith. There will be self-denial. There will be sacrifice involved. There will be submission involved. You're not just coming to some type of social club. And in Romans 10.9, Paul wrote, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I invite you to come and accept Jesus. I invite you to come and be one of his followers. It's not just a believer, but a follower. And don't come blindly, don't come flippantly, come understanding what he has required because he is the one who has the victory over sin and death and the grave. And through a relationship with him, we too have no concerns about death, because we will be in eternity with him.